The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. As we have seen over and over in this gospel, Lazarus' emphasis here is on the deity of Yeshua. And belief in the deity of Yeshua is a core doctrine of Christian theology. I'm amazed when people write me and say, well, I think you're wrong about that. Well, that's just too bad you're really messed up. Okay? Because this is important stuff. Because Yeshua said, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. And he's, he's using the tetragrammaton there, unless you believe that I am the name of God. You've got to believe that. Well, in this Gospel, (laughs) one of the ways that we are demonstrated, one of the ways that Lazarus is showing us the deed of Yeshua is through the signs. And Lazarus picks out seven of them. There was a lot more things, but he picked out seven because seven is a very significant number to the Jews. It pictures completion, perfection. So these signs are chosen by Lazarus, and they're chosen for particular reasons. They point to Yeshua as the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God. Now in chapter 11, we saw Yeshua's seventh and final sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. He stands at the open tomb there, and He calls forth, Lazarus, come out. And a man who had been dead for four days comes out of the grave, verifying what Yeshua had said earlier in the chapter, I'm the resurrection! and the life, and then He demonstrates it. And these amazing signs, especially this sign, caused many to believe. There was a crowd there. A crowd of mourners. Caused them to believe, well, because they believed, this just caused the Jewish leaders to crank up the heat a little bit more to want to kill Him. The more people followed Yeshua, the more the Jewish leaders figured, we got to stop this. Well, because of the Jewish leaders wanting to kill Him, the end of chapter 11, Yeshua leaves with His disciples. He goes to a region in the wilderness to just be alone. It's not time yet. Then in chapter 12 tells us that six days before Passover, the Passover that He's to die on, He returns to Bethany. This is the final week of Yeshua's life. In Bethany, His friends had a supper for Him, and during the supper, Mary, in an extravagant act of worship, takes and breaks this alabaster jar full of pure nard that was a year's wages. If you can even fathom taking something that cost a year of year's wages and just pouring it out. And everybody thought it was a waste, but she is preparing her Lord for burial. I think Mary knew what she was doing. Well, in chapter 12, after this anointing for burial, we see a shift in the ministry. He rides into Jerusalem. And then we see this shift. Scholars call it the Messianic secret. Over and over he's been saying, it's not my hour, it's not my time. And now all of a sudden he says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. That is such a loaded text. If Yeshua didn't die, 
would have remained alone. He wouldn't have the fellowship of the people he brings in by his death. But if he dies, he bears much fruit. The hour that had come was the hour of his death on the cross. He was going to be glorified through dying a sacrificial death. This is why he came. And through his death, a lot of spiritual fruit was to come. And he understood that he came here to die. He understood that from his birth because you know what his parents named him? Yeshua. Not Jesus. Yeshua. Okay? Because Yeshua means Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh's saves. He knew what his purpose was. He came to save his people from their sins. And he knew that salvation was to be through his death. And then in verses 25 and 26, he calls on believers to imitate him. Do you understand that's what we're called to do? We're called to follow Christ. He called upon us to die to self, to live a sacrificial life, to put others before ourselves as he did. Follow his example. He loved us and he gave himself. If we love others, we're to give ourselves. That's what love's about. Then the text that follows is a perfect illustration of having one's life in this world be given up. Yeshua speaks of the struggle in facing death. He says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it. The arrival of the Greeks in verse 20 triggered in Yeshua the recognition that His appointed hour had arrived. Because that hour encompassed the cross. And He is deeply troubled. He says, now is my soul troubled. What does He mean by troubled? Well, the Greek word here is tarasso. And it literally means to stir like you would stir a pot or agitate. It's used that way in John 5.4 of the angel coming down and stirring the pool. So literally, it's stirring. In a figurative sense, it can be translated as anguish, terrified, frightened, or horrified. Can you understand the Lord experiencing those feelings? It's a strong word. And if we look at a couple of its uses, I think we get the power of this word. Matthew 2.3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with it. When Herod heard of the birth of Yeshua, who was to be king of the Jews, it bothered him so much, you know what he did? He went and killed all the children from two years old, all the boy children, two years old and down. That's very He was really troubled. I mean, you go kill all those children, you've got to be troubled by this. This word is used in Matthew 14.26 for the attitude of the disciples when they see Yeshua walking on the water. And you might be thinking, well, why would you be terrified? I mean, that's a, I would be amazed, but why terrified? Well, the Jews had the concept that the water was the gateway to the underworld. And so this was a ghost to them. This was something coming up from the underworld, and it terrified them. And that's what some of the translations say. They were terrified. This word is used to describe Zacharias the priest 
in Luke 1 when an angel appeared to him. (laughs) That would be a little bit frightening too, I think. It's the same word used to describe the attitude of the disciples who were in the upper room the night of the resurrection. In Luke 24, 38, when Yeshua, the door is locked, and all of a sudden Yeshua appears to them there. And it says, they were terrified. Hey, this guy was dead. Here he is, I mean, it terrified him. Now, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they depict the same anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lazarus doesn't record the incidents in the Garden, as some of the synoptics did. So some believe that this is Lazarus' account of the Garden. And it may well be. He doesn't give the Garden account, but he gives this same account, and we see the same idea of the struggle here. Look at Mark 14, 33 and 34. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. Now, what I want you to see here is Yeshua was so moved, so grieved, so troubled, that he said, it almost is killing me. He was in absolute anguish and he prayed to the Father that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, I think in reading this, we have to ask, why is Yeshua so troubled? Why do you think he's so troubled? Okay, some say he's troubled because of the hardness and unbelief of the Jews. Eh, maybe a little part of it. You know, that did bother him, the hardness that was there. Others say he's troubled because of the sufferings of the cross. He's going to be executed by the Romans in one of the cruelest deaths known to man. You know, a Jew was normally stoned by his own community, but Yeshua knew a different death lie ahead for him. A very long, drawn-out, torturous, excruciating death. But if you think the thing that troubled Yeshua was the physical crucifixion, that raises a question. How can others face horrible deaths and yet remain calm, even peaceful, and Yeshua is terrorized? Many Christians have been tortured and put to death for their beliefs. Many have went to their death courageously. Many singing hymns right up to the very end. We hear it here every week about the voice of the martyrs. And the martyrs, I mean these people who stand calmly before their executioners and say, do what you got to do. Send me home. In the early part of the second century, the Roman emperor Trajan confronted Ignatius, who was bishop of Antioch, about his faith in Christ. Ignatius didn't shrink from his accuser, but instead he said, I have Yeshua the Christ in my heart. He was crucified for my sins. So he's taken to Rome and he's made a spectacle before thousands gathered in the Colosseum. When Trajan sentenced him to be devoured by wild beasts, Ignatius triumphantly prayed, I thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast vouchsafed thus to honor me. And then he declared, I am God's grain to be ground between the teeth of wild beasts so that I may become a holy loaf. For the Lord. The lion soon left nothing, they said, but a few gnawed bones, which his friends took and buried. 
So we, we hear this all the time, you know, people courageously going to their death. So why is Yeshua, is he somewhat weaker than these people? You know, that are so courageous? Why is he so troubled? John, John, John told us why. I don't believe it was physical death. Yeshua is about to experience the wrath of God for every sin for every one of the elect. He's about to experience the full wrath of God. It's hard for us to even comprehend or imagine, but on the cross, Matthew 27, 46, says Yeshua cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that, here's the purpose, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As our sin bearer, He was for the first time in eternity separated from the Father. Yeshua's agony was a result of coming face to face with the prospect of separation from His Father's presence. To be placed on the cross to die for the sins that were laid on Him. The Father hid His face from Him. This trouble didn't come from anticipating the physical suffering. but from anticipating the full wrath of God. And so He says, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? So He's deeply troubled and He asks Himself, What do I say? And He says, Father, save me from this hour. Now this sentence can be read as either a question or a prayer. We see the ESV makes it a question. They put the question mark on it there. The Greek will permit either one. All right. It seems better, I think, to me to see this as a prayer. This prayer is related to Gethsemane's, take this cup from me. But in both instances, Gethsemane and here, and there's a strong adversive that follows, Allah in the Greek, but in one case it's, Yet not what I will. He prays, take this cup from me, Allah, but not what I will, but what you will. And here it's Allah, for this purpose I have come. That's the whole reason I'm here. I've come to this hour. His sacrificial death has always remained the primary purpose of his mission. Back in chapter 10, he told us, he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid out my life. Now faced with the completion of that mission, Shall he ask the Father to spare him? The expected answer is no. He's not unwilling. He's totally willing. He says, Father, glorify your name. More than the deliverance from the hour of the cross, Yeshua wanted God's glory. We could paraphrase this. Father, glorify your name by the death which I'm about to undergo so that I may produce eternal life for your children. Now, What I found interesting here, the Arabic version reads, Father, glorify thy Son. And the Ethiopic version takes both. It says, Father, glorify thy name and thy Son. So which version should we pick? It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference at all, right? Because you glorify the Son, you glorify the Father. Remember John 5.23? that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. What? We're to give the Son equal honor as the Father? Absolutely! 
Because they're one. Whosoever does not honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent Him. What glorifies one glorifies the other. So you could take any translation you want. It's to glorify His name is to glorify the Father's name. He says, then a voice came from heaven. Okay, put yourself there. Okay? They're in the temple. Alright, Yeshua's teaching. Yeshua prays, Father, glorify Your name. Immediately, you hear a voice booming from heaven. Now, we see this in Scripture. We see it in Genesis 22 where God speaks from heaven. Later, Jewish teachers recognized this means of God speaking and called it the Batkol. Batkol means the daughter of the voice. Literally, the daughter or the echo of the voice. So, they understood that God spoke from heaven. Now, there's three times we see in the Scripture, in Yeshua's life, that God spoke from heaven to him. What are the other ones? Okay, the baptism, transfiguration, okay, and here. These three times, we hear God speaking from heaven. In all of these cases, the purpose of the voice was to authenticate Yeshua as God's Son. And in all cases, the voice comes in connection with His death. Now, this declaration in John, as I said earlier, is spoken. This is in Jerusalem. They're at the temple. There's a large crowd gathered. So, Yeshua, the man who had just raised the dead, who had given sight to the blind, who had made the lame to walk, he prays. And a voice comes out of heaven. Is there anything else God could have maybe done to show the people who Yeshua was? I mean, how many things does he. Okay, and hang on to this because next week we're going to get into this. When you're blind, you're blind. And there's nothing in the world that's going to show you the truth of God except God. This shows the total depravity of man. They they knew when Messiah came, He would do these things. They watched these things being done. Now they hear a voice from heaven. And they say, nah. What else? What else could the Lord have done? He says, I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. Then now Father answers, I've glorified it, and I will. He glorified Himself in the incarnation of Yeshua and Yeshua's ministry. He had just glorified His name in the resurrection of Lazarus, and now He will glorify it in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua. The cross showed the angels and the principalities in heavenly places, along with the whole world, the unfathomable Riches of the love and grace of God, which is His glory. The cross also displayed God's infinite holiness and justice, which is His glory. So in the cross, we see the glory of God put on display. Now consider this, believers. If Yeshua, in a moment of trial, in a moment of sadness, turns to the Father in prayer, Shouldn't we follow that example? When our lives are burdened, when our lives are going through difficulty? He turns to the Lord in prayer. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. I really believe that's why God brings trials. He's just pulling us closer as we call out to Him. You know, we could use King David as an example. He continually turned to the Lord in prayer. He's surrounded by his enemies. And when he needed comfort, when he needed reassurance of God's love, he just reached out in prayer. 
Psalm 31, a besieged David cries out, In you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. That's where his strength lies. Let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge to me, a strong fortress to save me. Warren Wearsby said this. I thought it was pretty insightful. He says, in the hour of suffering and surrender, there are only two prayers we can pray. Either Father, save me, or Father, glorify your name. You know which one we usually pray. Save me. But see, you know, save me might not be the right answer. That might not be what the Lord wants in that moment. But I'll tell you, it's always right to pray, Father, glorify your name. Use me in this instant. You know, when people are going through great struggles and trials and they ask me to pray, I always pray, but I maybe not pray what they want. I pray, Lord, use this trial in their life to show them your glory and to show others your glory through it. That he could be put on display through that. Well, it says the crowd that stood there and heard it said, it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Now, most commentators accuse the thunder group here of being naturalistic in their approach to God. Well, they just, they're, they're claiming this is just a natural phenomenon. It's just thunder. Other people saying it's angels. That's a spiritual crowd. These are the, you know, these are just the naturalist crowd. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Because in the Tanakh, thunder is often used as the voice of God. Exodus 19 says, God thundered. 2 Samuel 22:14, the Lord thundered from heaven and uttered his voice. Job 37.5, God thunders with His voice wondrously. We see this also in Psalm 18, Psalm 29. Job 40 says, can you thunder with a voice like His? So thunder was associated with the voice of God. So this crowd could have associated this thunder with the bat coal, the voice of God. We heard thunder and they're saying, hey, it's God, it's a voice of God speaking. But others said it's an angel. Again, this is a spiritual crowd. An angel spoke to them. So whether they saw this as the voice of God thundering as an angel speaking, this should have got their attention. Yeshua prays, and heaven thunders. Yeshua answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The voice was for their sake to convince them that He was the Messiah, to encourage them to believe in Him, to, without excuses, to put away, listen, you've seen so much that He did, the Messiah was to do, and now I'm speaking from heaven. And here's what's really interesting. The Jews had a rule about this. All right, According to them, no man is to be listened to even though he should do as many signs and wonders as Moses, the son of Amran, unless they hear with their ears that the Lord speaks to him as he did Moses. So they got a very rule for this thing. Well, Yeshua's out there healing the blind, you know, healing the lame, raising the dead. Ah, oh, that's okay. We don't want to listen to him unless we hear with our ears that the Lord speaks to him. So this is what happens. This is the final consummation. All of it, boom, here you go. And they're like, "Mm, no. They're dead. They're dead in trespasses sins. They can't see. And verse 31 says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world to be cast out. The cross would condemn and judge the world. Judgment here is krisis. 
Now, you say now? Now is the judgment? The judgment at the cross? Well, the cross was a judgment. But look at John 5:28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Not here yet, but it's coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out. So what time is that? That would be the resurrection, right? Time's coming about the resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So when is this resurrection? It's in AD 70. Alright? So there's a future judgment that's coming after the resurrection of all people. The good and the evil. When did Mary say the resurrection was to occur? The end of the age, the last day. Okay? Resurrection, judgment, the second coming are synchronous events. They all happen together. But Yeshua's prophecy of the future judgment of all people as happening now is because He understands it to be so certain that He can declare it as having already occurred. This is uh, what grammarians call a prophetic perfect. It's a future something that is so certain that it's expressed as already happening. Now is the judgment! And in a sense, the cross is a judgment, but it's going to come. This judgment is being pronounced in AD 70. Now he says, now is the judgment of this world. The word world here is from the Greek cosmos. And it's used three different ways in this gospel. It can refer to the physical world in which we live. It's kind of a neutral, just the world around us, right? It's used twice that way in John 1.10. He was in the world, physical world. The world was made through him. He made it all. Yet the world didn't know him. So, world can also refer to the spiritual corrupt world system that's dominated by Satan. That's probably how we think of it most often. It means everything opposed to God. As a sense in John 17, in Yeshua's prayer for the apostles, that the world hated them, he says, because they didn't belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. And thirdly, world can be used of all people, Jews and Gentiles together. This is a sense in the world's used in John 3.16. So what way is he using it here? Well, world here is the, he's speaking of the spiritually corrupt world system dominated by Satan. That is what's being judged. God is going to pass judgment on the world for rejecting His Son. Look at Acts 17.31. Because He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now this is after the resurrection. And the apostles are teaching there's a judgment coming. Right? He's fixed the day and He's going to judge the world in righteousness. Now the word will here in the ESV is the Greek word mellow. And whenever mellow and the present active indicative is combined with an infinitive, it consistently is translated about to. He has fixed a day on which he is about to judge the world. Now, in Vine's expository dictionary of Greek words on page 1038, Vine shows mellow's primary meaning as to be about to. To be about to or be about to do. Thayer's Greek lexicon on page 396 defines mellow as to be about to do anything. To be on the point of doing or suffering something. Aren't Gingrich and Bauer's Greek English lexicon defines mellow as to be on the point of, to be about to. 
So Paul is telling his first century audience, the Athenians in this verse, that judgment is about to come. It's about to. Timothy says this, or Paul says that I charge in the presence of God and Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearance and His kingdom. Now, here, he who is is also mellow. So Paul again is telling his first century readers that Yeshua is about to judge the living and the dead. This was to happen at His appearing. Christ's second coming in A.D. 70 was the judgment of the world. Now, most believers are still looking for this. But if you look at the text and allow the text to say what it says, it's about to happen. About to. And he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Well, this is a title for Satan. Yeshua refers to Satan as the ruler of the world three times in this Gospel. He does it also in John 14.30 and John 16.11. Now, Again, in an absolute sense, this reference is proleptic. The coming of Yeshua's hour, His crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and His exaltation to the Father, marks the end of Satan's domain and brings about His defeat, even though that defeat ultimately waits its consummation to the end of the age in eighty seven. What Lazarus says here, now will the ruler of this world be cast out, is very similar to what we see the writer of Hebrews say in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Now get that. It's through his death that he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God became a man to die and to free man from Satan's hold on death. So this text is saying the same thing as our text in John says. Christ's death defeated Satan. Now the question is, how does the death of Christ defeat the power of the devil in death? And to see that, we need to compare the flow of thought in verse 14 and 15 with verse 17. Verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now what stands out immediately when you compare these verses with the flow of thought in 14 and 15 is that both of them speak of Christ having to become like us. Verse 17 says, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. 14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same. So we know we are dealing here in verse 17 with the same basic flow of thought in order to accomplish something. Christ had to become just like us. But the rest of verse 17 is different from 14 and 15. And the difference just shows how Christ defeated the devil by dying for us. Verse 14 says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 17 says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ became like us so that he might become a high priest to make propitiation for our sins. So my conclusion is that Christ rendered the devil powerless in death by his high priestly work of making propitiation for our sins. 
His death is to bear the guilt and the punishment of our sins, not His own. And when our punishment falls on Him, it's gone. It's taken away. That's what propitiation means. It's the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. God's wrath against us was removed, why? Through the offering of Christ. Christ bore our sin debt. And people, if you ever really come to grasp this fully, it's very freeing. My sin is paid for. My past sin, my present sin, my future sin, it's all paid for. Christ died and He paid the sin debt. So many believers walking around today trying to pay off some of their debt themselves. God did a good job, but i got to help out. Boy, that's sad. And that's scary. I'm not helping. Okay? Because I, I can't help. I'm worthless, you know? If I start trusting in myself, Lord, help me, because then i got two saviors. I'm helping, and God's helping too, and we're working together, and, you know, no. Like the song says, He paid it all. All to Him I owe. I don't have anything to give. He bore the guilt and punishment. That's what propitiation means. God's justice, people, against the elect is satisfied. He loved us enough to put His own Son forward to absorb the punishment that we deserved so that He could demonstrate that He's faithful in dealing with sin because He punished sin. He didn't just let it go. He's faithful. He's just. So He had to punish sin. But He's merciful in dealing with sinners because He punished our sin in somebody else. What does the writer of Hebrews mean when he says he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil? In order to fully understand this phrase, I think we have to understand that the Old Covenant was a ministry of death. That sounds shocking, doesn't it? But that's what the Scriptures say. 2 Corinthians 3. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but the Spirit. The new covenant is the Spirit. Old covenant is the letter. He says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? When the old covenant ended, which was the this age of Scripture, so did Satan's power over death. The death referred to here is spiritual death, I believe. So many people make it physical. It's spiritual. Because the works of the devil were to separate man from God. I believe it was the devil who showed up as the serpent in the garden with the plan of separating man from God. No, just disobey him. Oh, he just thinks, he, he knows you'll be like him. Uh, he didn't mean, go ahead. Go ahead, eat of the fruit. He was a divine council member that wanted Adam, man, separated because he... They didn't want him in that council room. They wanted us out. So that was his purpose, to separate man spiritually. And Yeshua came to restore that, to bring us back into the presence of God, back into fellowship with God. Satan was not destroyed. The old covenant was not done away, and salvation was not complete until the return of Christ in 87. It's an important date, people. Because it ended the Old Covenant and brought in fully the New. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. It's a great verse, right? You know what it means, right? It means if we exalt Christ, if we speak highly of Him, if we live right, you know, we do what we're supposed to, then God will draw all people to Himself. 
You heard, you, I'm sure you probably heard that preached that way, right? That's right. Lift him up, lift him up, lift his name up, exalt him by the way you live, and he'll draw people to yourself. That's nice. It's got nothing to do with this verse. Okay? Nothing. And here's what you've got to remember. Correct biblical interpretation depends on context. Context is king. A text without a context is a pretext. Okay? So in context, 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 what surrounds this? What's he talking about? He's not talking about if we say nice things about him, he'll draw people to him. The words lifted up here are from the Greek, Greek hoopso. Hoopso means to exalt or lift up. But we know what he's talking about here, right? Because Lazarus tells us in the very next verse. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Thank you, Lazarus, because a lot of people are confused. A lot of people don't read the next verse, okay? They just pull out that verse like it's just a, you know, a fortune cookie and this is all that you need is what's on this strip of paper here. No, it's got context. The verb huso usually means to exalt someone. It's used that way in Acts 2.33. It talks about the exaltation of Christ. And as usual, Lazarus wants us to see a double meaning here. We've got this all through the book. Lifting up is really a word play. It can either refer to figurative exaltation or it can refer to literally, literally hoisting a body on a tree or a cross. Yeshua's being lifted up on the cross, which was the ultimate in shame, resulted in His being exalted by the Father. This is Yeshua's third reference to His lifted up. We saw one in John 3. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. How did He lift up the serpent? Put on a pole and he lifted it up, right? So must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may be turned. Just like the snake was lifted up, the Son of Man's going to be lifted up. This is a prediction of his death. It's crucifixion. Moses put that snake, that snake on a pole. Christ's going to be put on a pole. He's going to be lifted up in the same way. In John 8 28. So Yeshua said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, Talking to the Jews. When you do this, when you lift them up, then you'll know that I am. The he's not in the text. You'll know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. When Yeshua is saying, when you crucify me, then you'll know. You'll know by the resurrection that I am. Now when Yeshua talks about being lifted up and exalted, I think he also has in his mind Isaiah. In the fourth servant song, which is a prophetic vision of the suffering of Yeshua, the notions of being lifted up and glorified are brought together. 52.13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So here, being lifted up refers to the exaltation of the servant of Yahweh, though the context lays the emphasis on the suffering. Through suffering, he'll be exalted. In the Greek translation of this verse, the word exalted there is glorified. He's going to be lifted up and he's going to be glorified. He says, I will draw all people to myself. Yeshua is saying that through his death, through his resurrection, through his exaltation, he's going to draw all people to himself. Now, by draw, he's speaking effectually here. I will effectually draw them. The word draw, hopefully we're familiar with here, is helkuo. This is the same word we saw in 644. I, 
You got to know 644, okay? No one, Yeshua says, can come to me. Nobody. None. Zero. Zip. Not one. Unless there's an exception here. The Father who sent me draws him. Now, so many Arminians want to trans- translate this as woo or call or invite. But that's not, you know, <clears throat> that's not how it works. And here in this verse, it's the Father who draws, right? But in 12.32, it's the Son who draws. And as we've seen already, you shouldn't make anything about that because 5.19 says, for whoever the Father does, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He does the same thing as the Father. They're doing the same thing, so don't make a difference there. Well, Helkuo here, if you look it up, means to draw with irresistible superiority. Now, to an Arminian, this means that God is dragging you into the kingdom of God, and you're screaming and fighting the whole way, I don't want to be saved! Okay, that's how an Arminian sees this, all right? A Calvinist sees this as God changes your heart, gives you a new desire. A heart transplant, that's what you need. And when you get a heart transplant, you get a new heart, you have a new desire. To understand Hilkua, let's look at just a few uses of it, because this is, this is an important concept, I think. John 18.10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, Helkuo. And he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Okay, how did he get that sword out? Did he woo it? <laughs> did he invite that sword? Sword, I would like, I don't want to violate your free will, sword. But if you don't mind, will you come out of that sheet? <coughs> Nothing's happening. Physically grabbed the sword, pulled it out. He drew it with irresistible superiority. What did that sword have to say about that? Nada. I know, this bothers people. I'm sorry. Acts, not really. Acts 16, 19. But when his, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. All right, what did that Paul, come on, follow us. We're going to the marketplace. If you have the will to follow us, please do. You use your own free will and follow us. They didn't ask Paul anything. They grabbed them in silence and they dragged them into the marketplace. They didn't invite them. They didn't woo them. I think this word, when you look at the different uses, it makes it very clear to draw is to draw by irresistible superiority. Those that are drawn, come. This word, el is used eight times in the New Testament. Look, look all eight of them up. Examine their context. He says he's going to draw all people to himself. So some people understand Helkuo. It means to draw. And they say, well, see, Helkuo means to draw by force. Then everybody's going to be saved. But Yeshua is not affirming that the whole world's going to be saved. He's affirming that all who are saved are saved in this way. They're saved by the drawing of God. All people here does not refer to everybody. It means all kinds. We've been over this. Jews and Gentiles. I'm going to draw all people. See, the all men here, in context, should remind us of what triggered these statements in the first place. The arrival of the Greeks. And it means all people without distinction. Jews and Gentiles. Not all without exception. This passage is the answer to the Greeks' question, we wish to see Yeshua. Well, the Christ crucified will set before the eyes of the world, Jews and Gentiles, that He's the Savior. Once he's lifted up, he's going to savior of all men. This is the explicit answer to the Greeks. The hour has come for him to die. 
to be exalted, and in the wake of that, all people, Jews and Gentiles, are going to be drawn into the kingdom of God. You know, if there's one thing that the Bible teaches is that there's no such thing as universalism. There are men who are saved and there are men who are damned. It teaches both, okay? Look at John 8.24. I told you that you would die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Did everybody believe in Him? No. Most of the Jews rejected Him. You're going to die in your sins, He says. Well, look at John 10.26. But you don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. They didn't belong to him. He's got sheep and then there's goats. And if you're not a sheep, then you're a goat and goats don't get in. Goats don't come. It's not open to everybody. It's open to the elect of God. He says in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is just an explanatory note by Lazarus. The words kind of death here refer in the first instance to the nature of the execution itself. It's crucifixion. And then crucifixion, the victim was lifted up. So he's, tell, he's explaining us. He's telling us here about his death. This is how he's going to die. Now watch the crowd answers him then. All right? The crowd says, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. You understand how they get that? How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now this verse tells us several things. It tells us the crowd understood that the Son of Man meant Messiah. They, they made that connection. And they also understood that being lifted up was a reference to death. So they get those two things. So the reference here is they say, well, the law tells us, and that, by that they mean the whole Torah. Many prophecies of the Messiah promise he's going to be a prophet, priest, and a king who will reign forever. So they're like, okay, we get that. Son, you're the Son of Man. You're saying Son of Man is the Messiah. But we don't get this death thing. See, they may have been thinking of something like Psalm 89. His offering shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before Him. There's so many passages in the talk they could have been thinking of. We can't go through them all. Yeshua had been speaking of His dying. So they're saying, how can you, think, how can you be Messiah? What is clear is that the Palestinian Judaism of the time expected Messiah to be triumphant. Most expect Him to be eternal. Jewish sources amply attest to this. He will live forever, He will be a victorious King, and He will reign forever. So what is this talk about dying? That doesn't fit with what we know, what we have been taught from the Bible. They know the Scriptures speak of Messiah reigning forever. But here's what they don't understand. What about Isaiah 53? What about Isaiah 52? They don't understand Daniel 9 because Daniel 9 says Messiah would be cut off. What about Zechariah 12.10 that says Messiah would be pierced? See, they only see a Messiah who sets on an everlasting kingdom and so the cross was to them a stumbling block as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. They didn't get it. Our Messiah is not going to die. Our Messiah is a victorious conqueror. Here's the problem, people. They didn't have the whole picture. Messiah must first die and then reign forever. See, it was right there in the same scriptures, but, you know, often we read and we find what we like. 
And they liked the idea, and politically, they were looking for a political king. So that was their idea. And so anything of a dying, they translated it in a different way. They took all these verses and all these texts, and they just made something else out of them. We can't have a dying Messiah. It doesn't fit our plan. And so it was just a stumbling block. Verse 35 says, So Yeshua said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness, he doesn't know where he's going. The light is among you for a little while. What's he, who's he talking about there? What's he talking about there? Talking about himself. All right? He is the light of the world. Remember he told us that, John 8, 12? These are Yeshua's last words to the crowd. This is basically the end of his public ministry. And he returns again to this light, dark metaphor that we see all through the Gospel. Yeshua is speaking here of His physical presence in the world. He's the light. Especially in chapter 3, verse 19-21, through where the judgment consisted of light coming into the world, provoking a response from men who either come to the light or shrink back to the darkness. He says, while you have the light, I'm here, while you have the light, believe in the light. So you will become sons of light. When Yeshua had said these things, He departed and He hid Himself from them. Now the crowds are strongly urged to trust Yeshua here. The light of the world. Based on what they know about Him. I mean, listen to what, look at what you've seen, people. The miracles, the signs, the resurrection, the voice from heaven, the bat coal, and think about that. Put your trust in the light while you have it so you can become sons of light. Now the expression here, sons of light, reflects an idiomatic Hebrew, a son of light. A son displays the qualities of the father. So he is light, sons of his are sons of light. They display those qualities. The title sons of light was used to distinguish the members of the Qumran community. This was a favorite title in Qumran. They're the ones where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. That community had those scrolls. They compared the sons of light to the sons of darkness. And to them, the sons of darkness identified the followers of the corrupt temple in Jerusalem. So any of those, those who were involved in that temple and the ministry, and they were right, okay? That temple was as corrupt as they could be. They were... Qumran saw themselves as sons of light. They separated themselves from Jerusalem and from that priesthood, and they said, we're the true sons of light. They are sons of darkness. They're corrupt. And so a lot of this, you know, these people at this time were very familiar with Qumran and the community out there, and this was language they used. They understood it. The corrupt temple authorities. To the Jewish people in Jerusalem, to whom Yeshua spoke, this warning was a reminder, you just got a little bit of time left, guys. I'm leaving this world. These last recorded words of Yeshua to the world were an exhortation and a promise. You need to believe in me while I'm here. And then look what happens. When Yeshua had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. This is a dramatic illustration of what He's been talking about. It's the passing of the light. The light's going to be here for a little while. All the light disappears. He withdraws from the public arena. He departs across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. And here what we have, people. The light has departed from Jerusalem. 
It's gone. This is the climax of His Jerusalem ministry. The rejection of Yeshua by the majority of the Jews in Jerusalem. And next week we'll start looking at 37 on down. And 37 talks about they just didn't believe. He did all these signs. He did all these, and they did not believe. And then he, He's going to explain why didn't they believe. And we'll get a biblical explanation of why these people... And it has nothing to do with their free will. Okay? So this event signals a conclusion to Lazarus' account of Yeshua's public ministry. He's crying out to these people in the final time, believe in the light. And again, they had every physical reason to believe in Him. They saw the miracles, they heard the voice, all this fit together in their culture, this was Messiah. And yet the next verse says, they didn't believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Father, I thank You for the gift of salvation. Lord, I know that left to myself, I never would have believed. It's foolishness to Greeks. Uh, A Savior dying on a cross to save us, that just doesn't seem to make sense, Lord. And I understand very clearly that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to Him. But I thank You that in Your love and in Your grace, You not only chose people, you brought them into your family. You've taken orphans, Lord, and placed crowns upon their heads. It's amazing, Father. And it's very humbling. There's nothing in me that attracted you. But because you are a God of love, you brought me into your family. Thank you, Father. May our understanding of the Gospel cause us to just be continually praising you in humble gratitude for what you've given us that we had no reason to deserve at all. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Amen.